Hi, this is Jeff Coper with another Disney at Play podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have a fun uh, podcast for you as we talk about Disney attractions we wish we could have experienced. Almost every Disney fan can name an attraction in the parks they wish they had a chance to experience, but never had the chance to do it. Maybe you never had that chance to ride Horizons at Epcot, or Adventure through Inner Space, or even something as recent. I've met a few people the other day who had never been on the Great Movie Ride. I've had a wonderful life and a great blessing of experiencing attractions all over the world, and in fact, most attractions throughout my experience, but there are a few that I have missed, and I mean really missed. And so, I dedicate this podcast to sharing the top seven attractions I wish I could go back to and experience, because I've never had a chance to do them. Make sure you check out our notes page, because it offers lots of visuals, uh, some links, and definitely some videos because when we describe these attractions, you may not know that they even existed. They are, some of them, fairly unusual. But they're all a big part of places I wish I could have had a chance to experience. Let's start out with number seven, Big Game Safari. Now, this is a shooting gallery that used to be an adventure land at Disneyland. And as a preface, I should say, I'm not big on guns. I mean, I've, I'm not against guns. I'm not pro-guns. I don't own guns. I have shot guns over my life. But I'm, I'm not big on guns per se. But I am fascinated by old-fashioned shooting galleries, by the mechanisms, by how they rotate and so forth. And I even actually remember this shooting gallery as a child. I just never had a chance to actually shoot anything in it. Um, it was also known over the years as Big Game Shooting Gallery as well as Big Game Safari. Um, back in those days, the targets had to be restocked and everything in the shooting gallery had to be painted overnight before the next day. This was Disney's commitment toward having an outstanding show for its guests. The investment, mind you, wasn't just this shooting gallery. There was also um, another one uh, originally on Main Street that was at the rear of the Penny Arcade. So if you've been to the Penny Arcade, adjacent to the ice cream parlor, there used to be one in the back there. They kind of got rid of that one and really put a focus on the Adventureland version. And then there's always been the one in Frontierland. A, a lot of people actually, most people who have not done the shooting gallery um, more than, than the last couple of decades may not know again that you used to have pellets and you shot ammunition out of these rifles. In 19... 83, there was new technology using infrared that allowed them to change out the guns. And the first attraction, or the first park to actually have an infrared shooting gallery was Tokyo Disneyland's. 
uh, shooting gallery. And then they replaced all the other shooting galleries. But up until then, Walt Disney World, Disneyland, you had to paint those galleries at night. I love this one because it was so colorful. And I'll include a video that sh shows some pictures and photos of it. It's just really quite... Um, I just love the color. I love the the movement of all the different targets and how they respond to to pellets when they were hit. It's just, it's a fascinating thing for me. Nowadays, you still have the infrared shooting galleries. And of course, we have Midway Mania, which has very colorful um, shooting galleries. But there's something about hitting a tangible target that I kind of miss. And, uh, and so big game shooting gallery was the first one I listed. The next one I want to talk about are the pack mules. Now, this was also known as the Mule Pack from Disneyland Park opening in 1955 through 59. Then it became the Rainbow Ridge Pack Mules, and then it became the uh, Pack Mules through Nature's Wonderland from about 1960 through 1973. Um, this was a big part of Frontierland. If you wanted a Frontierland experience, um, you either went on the pack mules or they had Conestega wagons or they had stage coaches and they all kind of set off from Frontierland and they headed out into the Wild West. Um, in time, in, um, they, they, they enveloped what became known as the mine train through nature's wonderland. And they added more scenes. Mark Davis was really instrumental to doing this. And these scenes were added and it, it created a, a much more robust, bigger experience. And for that reason, I have a lot of memories. In fact, I will dare say that one of my favorite rides that I wish I could go on again is the mine train through nature's wonderland. We typically rode that partly, well, for a number of reasons, partly I was kind of scared of horses as a little kid. I thought, well, what if I get bucked off? And uh, mind you, these aren't horses. These are pack mules. I grew up in Arizona. The big thing about Arizona and mules is that Bridie of the Grand Canyon and other mules would go down the Grand Canyon. Okay, that is like the craziest thing in the whole world. Why would, and if you've ever seen the width of those trails back then, I would never have gotten, I'm scared of heights. And I would never have gone down the pack mules and the whole pack mule thing just, but there's another reason why I never did the pack mules. And the reason is, is that the, there were only so many mules moving at a time, one per mule. And so the line was much bigger, much longer and much slower back then. So honestly, it was just easier to just grab the mine train. And by the way, on the mine train, you got to see um, the Rainbow Caverns. And, and I got to tell you, the Rainbow Caverns were really um, just beyond cool. Unfortunately, none of these attractions uh, exist today. Um, you can um, head over to Four Wilderness and ride horses. And you can do the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, which is really where um, all this replaced. Actually, the footprint for the original attraction not only took up where Big Thunder was, 
It also took in space where you now have part of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It was a pretty, pretty hefty size uh, area that shot through there. Um, it later became the ranch. If you've been to Disneyland in the later decades, there was a ranch back there behind Big Thunder Mountain, and that was part of that whole riding area. Yeah, it's all gone. But I wish, if I could repeat it, I just had the real experience because it seems so real to be on the pack meals. And I wish I'd had that experience as a kid. Now, that was number six. We're going to go to number five, but this time we're going to head over to Walt Disney World. I've done most attractions at Walt Disney World with the exceptions of what I'm going to name today. This one is not in the Magic Kingdom, nor Epcot, nor the studios, nor Animal Kingdom. This one is the Osceola class side wheel paddle boats. Most people are familiar with the Staten Island fair style ferry boats that go to and from the transportation and ticket center on over to the Magic Kingdom. But in the early days of Walt Disney World, there was a much classier ship on the water. And guests in the early days were often taken on what was a pair of 100 foot long, what was referred to as the Osceola class. Osceola is a county, by the way, also, and it is a reference to an American native group. Um, but these were steam-driven side-wheel paddle boats. Now, when you go on the Liberty River boat, your paddle is in the rear of the boat. These had two sets of paddles, and they both sat on the side of the boat. You know, see the images. They were named, uh, respectively, Portsacal and Southern Seas. And these ships would help transport guests um, to and from during the day. In fact, they worked out of the dock, you know, the dock that you have for Fort Wilderness that kind of extends straight out in front of the Magic Kingdom. That would come right up alongside in that space right there and dock there and you would get off on the side of the ship. Um, and, uh, and so they would help take guests during the day and then evening they would serve as moonlight cruise ships. And you would have live entertainment and even cocktails were provided on board uh, the ship. In 1972, a pair of um, 120-foot-long, 600-passenger diesel-powered ferry boats called Magic Kingdom 1 and Magic Kingdom 2 took over the day-to-day -day guest transportation on Seven Seas Lagoon. These were the Staten Island-style um, ships. And they started doing the, the heavy hauling of guests to and from. And the two Osceola class ships were left solely to regularly scheduled recreational activity. In fact, I think they had daytime cruises as well as the nighttime cruises. Back then, a cruise would cost you 90 cents or you could use an e-coupon at the boarding gate. And that seems kind of weird using your, a ticket from the ticket book but that was a uh, custom back then uh, to do so. The sad news is that the Southern Seas suffered damage um, and was retired back in 1977. And the Ports of Call was kind of retired shortly after Epcot opened in 1982. However, um, there was a, uh, in 1977, a 120 foot 
diesel version of the Osceola class side wheel boat. And it was called not Osceola class, but Seminole class, again, reference to um, a native group here in Florida. That was also called the Southern Seas. It was built and began service, but that was eventually retired in 1996. There was also going to be another version. You know how you have a Mark III, a Mark IV, a Mark VII monorail. These are references to those kind of later versions. There was an Orlando-class steamboat that was going to be built, but it never got built. Of course, the ferries remain in operation and continue to carry guests to and from the TTC and the Magic Kingdom. But make no mistake, these side paddle, side wheelers, man, they had class to them. They had a look and feel unlike anything else. They were sleek and long. I wish I could have had a chance. Never did. Even though I came here in 1994 and we, my first visit was 88, somehow I missed that opportunity and I've been bummed ever since. Number four, we head back on over to Disneyland. The Flying Saucers in Tomorrowland. These are legendary to Disneyland. And the reason for that is because there was a show that it was on TV for years called The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney. In, in fact, my book on customer service is called The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney. It's a play on, on, um, on uh, Disney, uh, on that Disneyland show, show or that Disney show. And at the beginning, it would play a montage of Disney music and a mon and a whole bunch of different images of cartoons and images of the park. And one of the key images was guests riding in these flying saucers. And I've got a video from Disney showing what the saucers look like. In fact, when you look at the video, look at it carefully because what you'll see is actually Disney cast members riding it. They look just too nicely dressed and all oh, such nice young people. All wonderful, attractive young people. It opened two months prior to my birth in August of 1961. These were single rider vehicles and they all rode on a bed of, of air. If you're familiar with air hockey tables and how the water come, or water, the air comes up to the, to the table through little holes, the same principle occurred here. Uh, and and this was invented long before actually air hockey tables were around. Um, and there were actually two arenas. It was kind of this big, slightly oval, more than circular shape with kind of a line drawn the center. And it was actually two sides. So it allowed um, air to be focused on one side while the guests rode, while on the other side, it sat still and allowed guests to, to board and get ready. So it would kind of move back and forth. And these saucers would move by shifting your body weight, either to the left or to the right. You could kind of angle up to kind of move, but you kind of had to kind of um, move back and forth to, to move anywhere. Well, theoretically, they would allow you to move. Obviously, um, the more your weight, the harder it was to move. That's why you see such thin, nice young people on those of flying saucers. By the way, the, the promo rail, and I, you'll see this on the video, they throw these big balloons down on these flying saucers. And so they're all kind of 
and the and the air and the balloons come bouncing up off of the table where the air is. So these balloons are just going all over. It made beautiful footage for um, the opening of the wonderful world of Disney. But anyway, the truth is the whole system was a maintenance nightmare and it suffered from performing consistently. Um, and we should also mention it's kind of sort of a bumper car, um, which also could potentially invite injury if one gained the momentum enough to hit one another hard enough. As a consequence, in 1966, as the new Tomorrowland was created, these flying saucers flew away. Now, for the aging baby boomers, the dream of making this attraction come back was not lost. And such was the case with John Lasseter, who uh, over Pixar was really big on doing something similar in Cars Land when it was built for Disney California Adventure. Hence, when that land opened, one of the attractions was Luigi's Flying Tires, which opened in that land to accommodate greater, um, uh, to accommodate more guests per hour, because this one's not a fast moving ride, fast moving queue. They made bigger tires, which allowed more than one person to sit in them. It opened in 2012, but to be honest, it didn't do much good either. They even tried to introduce beach balls onto the table, just like they had done, once done balloons. I mean, this image of these balloons on these flying saucers every Sunday night on TV just played in your mind. But anyway, it didn't work out either. And eventually it was removed for what became Luigi's Rollican, um, Rollican Roadsters in March of 2016. I did try um, those... Uh, uh, tires and, and unfortunately it was disappointing we just couldn't get them to go much still if I could have had a chance to try the flying saucers that would have been really cool all right that was number four we're going on to number three and we are going around the world to meet the world meet the world was an attraction for opening day at Tokyo Disneyland. When they built the park, um, they basically, the Japanese, uh, the Oriental Land Company, which owns Tokyo Disney, basically went to Walt Disney World and Disneyland and said, we'll have this castle from Walt Disney World, we'll have this Pirates of the Caribbean from Disneyland, we'll have this Haunted Mansion from Walt Disney World, we'll have um, this steamboat from yeah, it just went on and on. And that's how you get the attractions you have. But there were two attractions that were built for Tokyo Disneyland uniquely for celebrating the culture and the people and the geography of, of uh, Japan. One of them was a 3D film called The Eternal Sea, which I don't think uh, that lasted more a, than a year year or two or three before um, a Magic Journeys came in and then eventually Captain EO. Um, however, the other attraction that came in was an attraction called Meet the World. 
and it was intended to honor the heritage of Japan, which has a much bigger history than America, as you see in the American Adventure. However, the show wasn't in a typical theater similar to the American Adventure. Rather, it was housed in a rotating theater similar to the Carousel of Progress. Now, if you're familiar with that attraction, you know that you board the carousel and into one, um, one of six theaters and you rotate in a circle around four, um, four stages and a pre-show and post-show um, presentation. Here, instead of the guests rotating around, the guests went into one of two theaters and the stage rotated around, which actually apparently allowed for a greater stage, although it didn't allow for as many guests per hour, but that's okay. Um, um, the show had, surprisingly, the show had over 30 audio animatronics and some of them look pretty impressive in the video. Plus it had a lot of 70 millimeter projector work, a lot of film in it, and 15 large pieces of show action equipment, including a hot air balloon that emerges with two children and a crane, which become kind of your hosts during this attraction. Um, the highlight of this show is a beautiful song written by the Sherman brothers for this attraction uh, it's called Meet the World. And it is, I don't know the words, well, actually you can find the words in English, but um, but I wish I could learn them in Japanese. I think I would stand in the middle of the queues at Tokyo Disney and just start singing this song. The show unfortunately closed in 2002, though the building was reutilized for Monsters Incorporated Ride and Go Seek attraction. And I gotta tell you, I wonder if how they came up with that attraction for that space, which by the way, that attraction was kind of the segue between Tomorrowland. It's not quite Tomorrowland, and neither is Monsters for that matter. But but um, but where the show was was kind of a segue between Tomorrowland and World Bazaar. Only if you understand how World Bazaar, which is their main street, works, it's rather than it's a long street, it's more of a cross with one street going down one way and another big street going sideways, one that dovetails into New Orleans Square then, then becomes Adventureland, and the other one that dovetails into the space that eventually becomes Tomorrowland. And it's interesting because the, if you look at the video, you'll see that the um, area where guests gather before they go into the theater was kind of a domed room with a map of the world on the ceiling. And it really, it, it looks like the space that is in uh, the main plant at, in Monsters Incorporated. It, it's really kind of interesting how, I'll have to try to put in a picture of the, of the Monsters Incorporated um, uh, queue area to kind of show you what that looks like. At any rate, it's, um, it's really great. And by the way, another little detail is that this same show was also designed and intended to be part of the Japan Pavilion at Epcot. 
I want to say it was, I'm not sure if it was the original plan because there was also a bullet train attraction theater and I can't remember which one came first. But as you go through Japan, you'll remember that there is a big palace in the back of that pavilion. Well, behind that palace is where they were going to put this attraction. And apparently they were going to have it on the second floor with, I guess, the shops underneath on the first. I don't know what, how they were going to do this, but apparently they found out the structure was going to support it. Didn't matter because they had cost overruns. And if you're aware, Tokyo came right at the heels of this massive building of Epcot. So they had they had everybody working on everything at the time. They could barely provide for all of it. So they shelved the show for Epcot, which, again, there's some challenges with that show because you get into World War II and how do you handle that? Then you have veterans groups that come through here in the United States. It was just kind of messy. So they ended up not doing that. At one time, later on, they had the idea of having a Mount Fuji-style roller coaster, kind of like the bobsleds, but with Mount Fuji. That got shelved as well. There is still a big space back there. It's actually used as a carpenter shop for, um, uh, for the parks. And uh, again, I would love to see something that was back there. But anyway, that is Meet the World. I got to tell you, I wish I could have seen this attraction. The next attraction also comes from Tokyo Disneyland. It is my number two choice of what I really wish I could have seen. And it is Cinderella Castle Mystery Tour. This may be most bizarre thing I have described to you this evening. Now, we all know if well, you may not know, but but know that. When they designed Tokyo Disneyland, they took the exact design of Cinderella Castle for use um, for this park. But they decided not to make a restaurant off of the second floor like it is at Magic Kingdom. Rather, they decided to put in some kind of attraction. Now, remember at Disneyland, there's not a lot of space up in that small Sleeping Beauty castle, but there is a Sleeping Beauty walkthrough. And it's very charming now. It was not so charming in the original days. Um, it was kind of, you know, it's more like, you know, Barbie dolls all dressed up. And, um, and but this is, this is a tour that was going to be given by cast members. And I've got a video for this. Watch the tour guest. She is impeccable, energetic, dynamic, which Disney cast members are. You should also see my, uh, video of my, the Jungle Cruise at Tokyo Disneyland. These people have energy. any rate, they take you on a tour. They're going to take you on a beautiful tour of Cinderella Castle. And they go into the first room, which is a portrait gallery of famous Disney characters and princesses. And then all of a sudden, who should appear but the magic mirror from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he scoffs at the fact that there are no villains uh, shown in these portraits on the wall. And so he transforms these portraits and he takes you on a very different experience. A door opens out of nowhere, leading you down into the witch's um, you know, laboratory where she makes the poison apple. And you walk past prison cells and talking skulls and animated coats of armor. 
Um, and then you go into a series of other scenes. One is uh, f uh, f film footage from Fantasia that features uh, Chernobog. And um, another leads you to a chamber where, where there is uh, water flowing. And here the goons from Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent's goons, they appear, they threaten the guests. And that eventually leads you to a massive sleeping dragon. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> if the dragon wasn't enough, now they take you to a chamber where they explain the story of the Black Cauldron. You know that story, don't you? Yeah, that story? Yeah, well, tapestries you're gonna need because nobody remembers the story to the Black Cauldron. So they have these tapestries, so they start to explain and all that, and all of a sudden, you are brought before the Horned King of the Black Cauldron. And I gotta tell you, this is one, this is probably Disney's scariest animatronic that has ever been created. It is, it is ugly, it is scary, it is creepy, it is, um, and he threatens the guests that appear. Fortunately, our host provides a chosen guest with the lighted sword, hold the sword up, kind of like Mickey does in Fantasmic, and thus defeats the Horn King, and all live happily ever after after that. <laughs> So, um, it is, I've got a video of it. In fact, um, I don't believe it is a English tour. Yeah, I think it is a Japanese tour, but, but images will give you an idea of what's going on, except for the plot line in Black Cauldron, and you're on your own as you watch that on Disney+. Plus. I should say that the attraction has since been replaced by what is a beautiful walking tour paying homage to Cinderella. And in my uh, comparisons of cast Disney castles, that was another uh, blog post, I'll put the link on it. Um, we showcase that, which is a beautiful tour. The only weird thing about it is you're brought to the throne of Cinderella and you can even have a picture taken um, at the throne as well as a picture taken by the glass slipper but there's no Cinderella and Cinderella never makes an appearance in the castle. So it's a little bit of a disappointment, but you get to go up into the castle and actually you exit, you come out of the castle and you have this beautiful view as you step down in Fantasyland. And let me tell you, the Fantasyland is um, designed like Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, but it is so beautiful. At any rate, it's a complete 180 degrees difference from, um, from the mystery tour and unfortunately it was replaced before i had a chance to go experience it so it's one of the things i've always wanted to do but it looks like i'll never do it would love to know where the horn king is today um but um uh i don't think he's playing a shaman in uh, in pandora um now we bring ourselves to the number one attraction and i will tell you i could have done a whole podcast on this attraction because i miss this attraction more than any other and to set this up let me explain that when i was a child one of the things i did i know everybody in my youth listened to chicago and the beatles and everything i admit i listened to disneyland <laughs> records and 
My first ones I had was The Haunted Mansion and The Country Bear Jamboree. Beautiful albums. Um, I'm, I still have The Country Bear Jamboree one. I am disappointed I gave my nephew The Haunted Mansion one. He still owes me that. But these are beautiful LPs. And I kept gathering more of these LPs. I got The Hall of Presidents and I got It's a Small World and the Walt Disney World Band is a is a, another class. But there, I got all these albums, and then I saw one on a new attraction for Walt Disney World only at Walt Disney World, called the Mickey Mouse Review. It was also subtitled Mickey, This Is Your Life. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the album based on the Mickey Mouse Review, which premiered with the opening of the Magic Kingdom in 1971. So I grabbed this album. Most disappointing album I have had in my entire life. This thing did not have one iota of music from the actual attraction. It did have the same songs. And so one side gave this oral history of Mickey Mouse and taught you that his name in Italy is Topolino's, which is the name of the restaurant, um, the new restaurant at Walt Disney World. I knew that instantly when I saw the name of the restaurant. But it's just kind of this history of, of Mickey Mouse, like, so what? And then the other side has this, these songs, all uh, Golden Afternoon and Hi-Ho and A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes many of which I already had these songs, and they were not the ones recorded for specifically the Mickey Mouse reviews. I was terribly disappointed by this album, and I just yearned for the chance to actually see the show. Um, unfortunately, the show closed in 1980. Remember I talked about the fact that, that Imagineering was overwhelmed by not only opening Epcot, but opening Tokyo Disney. Well, a compromise to getting it all done was, and this was probably one of the worst decisions. I have to blame Dick Nunes because he was in charge. I think this is one of the worst things ever decided. They took out the Mickey Mouse review. And they thought by putting Magic Journeys in its place as, um, as a substitute, uh, when uh, Captain Neil went in in Epcot would make up for it. It did not. Later, they put in uh, Legend of the Lion King, which is a puppet show. That actually had a lot of merit to it. It was a really decent, decent show. Should have kept it. And then they put in Mickey's Filler Magic, which I love the music. I love the concept, but the 3D needs to be redone. It was it just, it was early 3D and it needs to be redone. And it's just, it's boring. It's not animatronics. And there's something fascinating about audio animatronics. When they're working, they work beautifully. That's why I think Country Bear Jamboree works. By the way, in 1971, when the Magic Kingdom opened, they promised a show, an animatronic show for every land. So the Enchanted Tiki Room came to Adventureland. The Country Bear Jamboree, brand new, came to Frontierland. The Hall of Presidents, brand new, 
an extension of Great Moments with Mr. Linky at Disneyland came in there. The um, the uh, Mickey Mouse review came to Fantasyland, and then eventually in in seventy four, um, the Carousel of Progress was put in. So you could go around the Magic Kingdom and see nothing but audio animatronic shows. Hey, I'm all favorite because guess what? They all have the same thing in common: air conditioning. And I love air conditioning in the Florida heat. Any rate, I digress. They took the show and they brought it in as a opening show for Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. And it played many years, probably played better because, frankly, the engineers at Tokyo Disneyland know how to deal with animatronics better than the ones anywhere else. Um, but, unfortunately, they took it out in 2009 to put in Mickey's Filler Magic. What are we thinking? And I never had a chance to visit. I ended up at Tokyo Disney um, after that, and I never had a chance to see the Mickey Mouse review. Now, I have a video of this as well in my links. The show had a full animatronic orchestra with Mickey as conductor, Minnie as first violinist, the only violinist, I think, um, Daisy, Pluto, Goofy, other Mickey and the Gang characters. But then it had also characters like the Mad Hatter and the March Hare from Alice in Wonderland. It had Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. It had Dumbo and Timothy. It had King Louie, Baloo, and even Ka the Snake. It was, it was kind of a weird assortment of Disney characters in this orchestra. Most unknown. It had Jock and Gus, by the way, from Cinderella. Very tiny little mice. And it had the most unknown mice. If you know Monty and Abner, those are actually the city and country mouse from a Disney short film called Country Cousin. They, too, are in the orchestra. This is just the most random assortment of characters. And it has a big overture. Mickey comes up from the ground, from below the ground, and it had it went on to do an overture, and then it did songs with characters playing along from the Three Little Pigs, uh, Snow White singing to her animal friends, followed by the Seven Dwarfs doing um, uh, -do, that song and playing the organ, which all moved, Grumpy playing the organ and so forth. They had Alice in Wonderland doing Golden Afternoon with all the flowers, kind of swaying. Then they had the three caballeros uh, singing. Uh, they had Cinderella, who with the uh, fairy godmother does Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, transforms Cinderella into a ballroom gown. And then she does a, um, a song with the prince. And um, so this is love. And then finally, Song of the South, Zippity Doodah with Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear. And then finally, uh, uh, an ending with all of the characters on stage. If you think, if you th if you look, if you think about the Mickey Filler Magic stage, it is wide like the Hall of Presidents. That thing filled with Disney characters when it came to the finale scene. Unbelievable! There were at least forty-five sculpted Disney characters, not including the animals from Snow White, the flowers. Um, from Alice in Wonderland, but then you have Cinderella evolving as two characters from one scene to the other, and then you have uh, the three caballeros. They 
not only come up for their scene, but then the lighting changes and then they pop up in different corners of the stage. It's you have to see the show to believe it. So they they've got multiple versions of the Three Caballeros. Other than America Sings, which is one of the shows I miss the most, and The American Adventure, which is a very complicated set of animatronics and the way they are staged, there may have not been a more complicated animatronic show than the Mickey Mouse Review. Um, by the way, its predecessor, what created the Mickey Mouse Review? Its predecessor was something called the Mickey Mouse Theater in Fantasyland at Disneyland in the early days, it would play Mickey shorts. You just, uh, you know, showed your ticket, A or B ticket, and you went in and watched shorts. It's one of the things I never saw was that theater, actually. Um, that's why on that side of the, uh, the right side is you face the castle in Fantasyland. Um, you're standing by the carousel on the right side. That's why you see... Mickey, what, what is Mickey Filler Magic now, which before was Mickey Mouse Review. It's on the right side because the Mickey Mouse Theater was on the right side. By the way, curiously, now there's a Mickey Mouse Shorts Theater in Disney's Hollywood Studios. So, um, of course, if you're familiar with Grand Fiesta Tour at Epcot, then you know that you could find the three caballeros there. And let me tell you, the day they showed up, it was joyous in my heart. I was so thrilled. The only disappointing thing about that scene is that before they put them in, they actually had a pretty clever cartoon montage playing on the screen um, on uh, of that stage, on the, on the backdrop of that stage. I think they should have rear projected that scene and kept the animatronic and added the animatronic characters because I think it would have made the whole thing look a lot more lively. Um, you also should know that the characters that were sculpted, such as Snow White and I believe Alice, definitely the seven dwarfs, you know, how they're all playing the musical instruments, grumpy at the organ. Well, those sculpted characters evolved eventually toward the dark ride. So um, you see them in Snow White's Scary Adventures. You see them still in the finale of the um, of the uh, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train at Magic Kingdom. So they still kind of show up. They're less animatronic, but they move and that type of thing. But they are um, they are still remnants of these earlier um, Disney characters. Well, so that is my number one. I really wish. I could go back in time and experience the Mickey Mouse review. Are there other attractions? Yeah, there's some I haven't seen. Um, I The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea walkthrough at Disneyland, which opened when the park opened in 1955. I think that would have been really cool. You know, Walt was actually painting sets to kind of get that show ready just before Disneyland opened. He himself was there doing that. Um, the House of the Future in Tomorrowland at, in the early days of Disneyland. I think I remember seeing that, but I don't remember ever having walked it through. Um, then you go to the World's Fair. I would have loved to have seen aspects of the Ford Pavilion um, and to have ridden a Mustang 
Ford Mustang through that attraction. That would have been cool. There's some post shows to the Carousel of Progress at the World's Fair. Would have loved to have seen those. Also, um, some current attractions I've yet to go on. Haven't been on Crush's Coaster at Walt Disney Studios Paris. Looking forward to it. It's been a couple of years since I've been to Walt Disney Studio or to Disneyland Paris. I haven't done that. And um, I've been to Shanghai Disney. But every time I've been there, the Roaring Rapids has been closed. So I haven't had a chance to do that attraction. And then finally, I haven't done Ratatouille from the Walt Disney Studios Paris, but good news is I may be doing it really soon at an Epcot near you. <laughs> well, that is it for today's podcast. Um, tell us what attractions you wish you could go on that may not exist anymore. I'm going to put a, a link on our show notes page. We'd love for you to come visit us and uh, and share. What is the attraction you would have loved to have seen that you've never had a chance? You've heard every about it, or maybe it's in another part of the world and you just haven't had a chance to go to it yet. Tell us what it is. We'd love to hear from you. And again, we thank you for joining us at Disney, um, Disney at Play. Remember, wherever you are, uh, wherever you are in the world, always remember to follow the compass of your heart, as Sinbad says in his storybook voyage. Have a great day, and we'll see you real soon.